Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a reading from today's guest, McKenna Goodman. To preface my incredible conversation with McKenna, enjoy this excerpt from her debut novel, The Shame. Here's McKenna. This passage is she's on the drive. And this is a moment where she's recalling that, in fact, she's still driving. I had to switch radio stations to something more upbeat. I was getting tired. My phone buzzed on the passenger seat, and I reached over to pick it up. I had received a new email telling me about my credit rating, and as I was swiping it away, there came another one, a literary newsletter. I deleted the first, but left the second for later, and I turned my eyes back to the road. I thought about the time before email was ubiquitous, when people wrote things slowly, in drafts, and reread them before they were sealed into envelopes, when they were licked, stamped, piled, shuffled, then delivered. There was still time then, until the mail person arrived at your door. Still time, until the office administrator picked up your letter from the outbox by the copier and delivered it to the post office. You could still remember something you wanted to say, dash to the mailbox, rip open the envelope, and refill it, Or you could tear it up, throw it away, start over. You could revise. You could make a mistake, and there would be time to cover your tracks. If you were desperate enough, you could track down the mail person going from door to door and beg to be allowed to retrieve your envelope. If you could identify all the marks on it, if you could promise you weren't lying, the mail person might have let you. But now there is condensed time. There is just the coursing current of moment stacked upon moment, and there are fingers moving rapidly, and there are buttons next to other buttons with the total opposite meaning. It is so easy to mistake one for the other. What if you could change your life? Would you do it? How would you do it? These introductory questions invite readers into the world of The Shame, a novel by McKenna Goodman that follows the yearning and ultimate unraveling of a woman named Alma. While the book itself is short in length, readers become immersed in a slow buildup to a critical decision that Alma makes revolving around Celeste, a mysterious but pivotal character in Alma's life who at first serves as a source of inspiration for Alma, but that inspiration steadily evolves into infatuation throughout the story. While McKenna has created a riveting work of fiction, the shame acts as a vehicle for necessary conversations around the relationship between art, identity, and commerce in the age of capitalism. For McKenna, these ideas remain top of mind, and in this conversation, she spoke more about how she arrived at this transcendent story, her relationship with pace and creativity, and how she's learned to reframe an important question when examining storytelling and life. I was absolutely spellbound by McKenna, and so I won't give too much more away. With that said, here's my conversation with McKenna Goodman, author of The Shame. 
who am I outside of writing? Um, so many things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very important to me to think about how I spend my day. So to me, I think about the pace of a day and what it looks like. So obviously right now it's really different. Although for the last two days, my two children have been going back to in-person school. So the pace has been really frantic in the morning. Um, but in general, you know, I like to be in my garden. I like to take long walks where I can think. I like to paint without thinking. You know, I love to read, of course, cook. And really for me, it's about time and the time to contemplate. I know that time is very valuable and elusive. So anytime I have extended time to myself is, is what I enjoy. <laughs> yeah. And I think it used to be before this year, at least time was such a, it was something we took for granted. And now people are kind of getting back to the core of why time is so valuable. And I think, you know, I always like to ask writers in particular about what they're reading. And so kind of building on that idea of valuing your time. Is there a particular story that you read recently that kind of made you slow down or reconsider how you're spending your time or challenged you to spend your time in new ways? Well, I've been reading a lot lately. I mean, I've, I'm always reading a million different books at once, which is something that I feel like I just, I can't stick to one at a time and they all relate to each other. But right now I'm reading a lot of philosophy and social theory. So um, some of which is very dense and complex. And I'm enjoying reading the introductions to the theory by other philosophers who are writing monographs on the particular work that I'm interested in and kind of the interpretations of one thinker on another one's thought, not in a critical way, but more in a like reveling way. So I've been, you know, just like in the past, whatever, like week, I've been deep into a book of Spinoza's practical philosophy. I've been reading um, Rudolf Steiner again, who sort of brought, you know, in the early 1900s, he was kind of the founder of a sense like anthroposophic thought. And um, he was a teacher, he was a theorist, and is kind of like the thinker behind biodynamic agriculture and other things like Waldorf education and spiritual science. Anyway, so I've literally had to slow down in the sense that the work is demanding in a different way than fiction. And, and I think I read books so quickly and like ferociously and hungrily that to really stop and like underline and study has been a, a joy as of late. Yeah, I'm the same way. I think I'm on book 40 of the year, but I've kind of had to step away from nonfiction or anything that requires honestly a lot of introspection in the sense of how we're living just because I need an escape. Um, so I've been very invested in amazing literary fiction and stories like The Shame, which we'll talk about in a minute, you know, as you're kind of going through some of these works and, and I guess as you read, is there anything that's coming up for you that was unexpected? 
I mean, what you're reading, I I can't really speak to, to be quite honest, but <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's not the most user-friendly kind of work. Yeah, I've read a lot of other novels that I've loved that I could recommend, but I mean, yeah, I think it's funny, you know, I think a lot of people, I hear a lot of people have said, you know, I can't read anything during COVID. It's so depressing. I just need to escape myself. And I guess I feel the opposite. And I don't, I don't think that that's any like moral high ground or anything that I'm taking, but I feel that it's sort of like wandering around in the darkness. Like I've been wandering around in the darkness for a long time. And all of a sudden the darkness is like so dark that it's almost the opposite of dark. It's almost light. It almost opens up. And I feel the desire to learn more about how we got into this place and how in fact, you know, things have been this bad before. And 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 what were the precursors to those times in history when things have been this bad? And um, so when I go back to this kind of philosophy, which, you know, 17th century philosophy, and as well as, you know, 19th century and 20th century, for me, to hear about the thought processes and analysis that went into times that feel like they were, you know, they're centuries ago, and yet they're really, they're still resonant. So like Deleuze, who's um, this French philosopher, he said, and I wrote down this quote, because it did make me think differently. (laughs) And he said, so for example, like here he was, he was this globe, he was this philosopher who was commenting on, you know, the highest echelons of thought across the world and through time periods. And um, yet he was born in Paris and spent most of his life in Paris. And um, I think like a critic or someone was asking him about like, how can you, you know, how does that work? Like you're writing about the rest of the world and how it works. And yet you've been here your whole life. And he said, if I stick where I am, if I don't travel around like anyone else, I make my inner journeys that I can only measure by my emotions and express very obliquely and circuitously when I write. And then he says, arguments from one's own privileged experience are bad and reactionary arguments. And he has this, it doesn't really matter if listeners know who this guy is, but but basically he was a really important philosopher. And he said, instead of asking, is it true or what is it? We should ask about the practical application of the question. So like, how does it work? And I think that it's easy in these moments of crisis to think like, where are we? What's happening? Is it, is it real? Is it not real? You know, what's going to happen in November? <laughs> you know, like, are we going to survive? And to think about how it works. How does it work? How did we get here? Because this isn't this big accident. You know, lots of people predicted that this was going to happen. There have been pandemics, not in contemporary history, but throughout history. Like, you know, racial tensions and injustice among, you know, poor people and people of color in this country. This is not new. This has been building. This is a movement. It's a dark movement, but like a movement, it's been building. And so I've been thinking and reflecting a lot about how did we get here? And if I can wrap my head around that, I can make more sense of where we might be going or how to even be in the moment, if that's all we have. And also like in terms of, you know, the writing process, like what stories should we be telling right now? Do we need more escape? Is that what 
the people demand? Is that what will liberate us? Is that what will free us from this feeling of darkness and pain? Or is it more understanding? I think that we do want to escape, but I don't think we want to flee, actually. I think that what we want is connection and understanding. But oftentimes, the pathway to understanding feels so tangled and so difficult. And academia is so, you know, jargony and hard to penetrate that it almost seems like escape is the only option. But I actually think that that's like a tool of capitalism to keep the people down. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You couldn't see me, but I was nodding along with a lot of what you're saying. And something that comes up in a lot of the conversations that I have on this podcast in terms of this kind of reaction to things is the shift from being reactive to proactive. And I think when you're talking about escapism, for me, reading stories like The Shame, you know, I escaped for the for the moment or for the day. It took me a day to read the book. Um, as I was kind of returning to like my life, I think stories like that, that allow you to kind of dip into another world, but then inspire so much introspection. To your point, it's an incredible tool. Also what you were saying too about kind of the systems that we're examining in terms of how we've gotten to this place, you do such a wonderful job of, I guess, addressing some of these things with the book. And I want to talk about it in just a minute, but before we do... It would be great too if you could just give a little overview of your relationship with writing and how it's kind of changed either through this time or as we've become more connected as a result of these conversations and technology as a, a mode for some of these discussions to kind of take form, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, perhaps I live a different kind of life. I mean, technology hasn't really become more ingrained in my life in, in recent years, perhaps to the degree in other places, simply because we barely have access to Wi-Fi and there's no cell service at my house. I live in a remote village in rural Vermont where, you know, like almost mysteriously, there's still, you know, we're still waiting. We have good Wi-Fi, but we're still, you know, we don't have service. And and most people, you know, when you go to someone's house for dinner, which we are not doing right now, you're, you don't even bring your cell phone because it doesn't work. And I still live in a world where phones are not always on the table. So anytime I go to, you know, visit friends or family in the city, I'm always shocked um, by how the phone as this object exists as an extension of the hand relatively recently i was visiting some family and and they live you know like a much more kind of integrated with society like urban life suburban life than than we do in my family and and i was amazed how like no matter where we were in the conversation if a text came in or if there was a lull in conversation that was fair game to pick up the phone and scroll through and see what was happening and i did it myself Um, because I was so thrilled that my phone actually worked somewhere. So here was this opportunity. (laughs) And anyway, I think that, you know, like over a decade ago, I chose, I made a conscious choice to remove myself from that kind of, I don't know what you would call it. It's not like I thought I'm removing myself from technological life, but I decided to move to the middle of nowhere in Vermont and to reject certain aspects of life that seemed inevitable to me and that I wanted to, you know, have more control over, be more intentional about 
learn about the land, learn about how to live on it. And the difference now is that what began as a choice for an isolated life is now mandated by the state. So the conditions of my life remain relatively the same, whereas the context for it has changed. And so because the context has changed, my relationship to it has changed in the sense that I feel very lucky to be quarantined on my hilltop, you know, <laughs> looking down over the beautiful bounty of the earth. And yet I think, you know, the boundaries of my own life, you know, quote unquote property, the property upon which I am perched is like decidedly different in terms of its, you know, meaning or value than most people's experience in quarantine. And so the starkness of my access, while always there, is is somehow more egregious and feels more disgusting somehow or more unfair, or at least like what once was this image of paradise now feels like an imposition on someone else's ability to live. And yeah. Thinking about isolation. And I'm also thinking about kind of the world in which you started writing The Shame and how different it was. I want to talk about the story because it deals with so many things that I think are top of mind for a lot of people right now. Uh, Parenthood, the role of art and creativity in a time of crisis, and all kind of brought together through this landscape that really asks us to post and share and perform, especially when we're talking about social media and technology. So walk me through a little bit about the process in sort of arriving at the final version of The Shame. Maybe give like a brief overview in your own words of the plot for those who might not have read the book yet and just kind of how you view the final form and uh, what you're happy about in terms of how it came together. Because I think that's important to talk about too. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the book is, it's not very long, right? Like it's a hundred and, you know, less than 150 pages. Basically the gist of the plot for, for those who haven't read it, it's about a woman who's living in this isolated life. And this is, you know, I guess pre-COVID times. I mean, when I was writing it, I wasn't thinking about COVID because it hadn't happened yet. But the idea was she made this choice to live this ethically motivated, connected, ingrained life um, where her choices mattered. Every choice, every moment was intentional and political. And she has two children and her husband is a philosophy professor and she lives a beautiful life and she's still isolated and feels disconnected from everything, like her choices, (laughs) even though they're so intentional herself existentially, you know, even her children, she feels far away from what it means to have children, even though, of course, they're crawling all over her. Plus, she feels intellectually isolated because of the sort of agrarian life and what that means and demands of the physical body. Um, So in order to feel intellectually connected, as well as connected to other women who feel the same as her, she reads. And she reads and she reads and she reads and her life, her inner life 
is very much determined by these books that she's reading by women, you know, throughout history, mostly in the last, you know, 200 years or so, women who were writing about similar experiences to hers. And in order for her to connect with these women, she feels she must write a book of her own. And so she begins to work on a novel that she feels is going to distill like the meaning of experience of her experience in a way that can be somehow liberating. And she wants to write about her own life, but not directly. And so she finds a woman online. She looks online for a woman to use as a model for character development. And upon discovering someone who reminds her of herself enough that she can be a stand-in for herself as she writes, she becomes fixated on her and it develops into an obsession that is derailing and ultimately takes over all of these other kind of contradictions in her life. And it becomes all about this woman and having what she has. And so the book is about basically takes place over the course of one day as she's driving in the middle of the night away from her family in Vermont down to New York City in search of this woman. And she's piecing together what brought her to this moment. You know, so it's one day, right? It's a day in this woman's life. And yet within the span of a day is her whole life, her whole existence, both her ancestry and where she came from and the future of her, of future generations in her family. It, so for me, it was about condensing time into a moment that you could almost hold in your hand, you know, and how life can feel that way, where, you know, at a moment of crisis or a moment of decision making, your entire life, you know, they say it flashes before your eyes and you're faced with the meaning of humanity and your existence and, and what you're going to do. Like, are you going to, are you going to keep going or are you going to die of, you know, meaninglessness or whatever? Anyway, so in terms of the process of writing, how I came to the story was through experience, through lived experience first. So it was similar to the narrator whose name is Alma, similar to her experience it was this feeling of how can I connect the meaning that I make, that I feel I'm making with my hands on this land, with my body and in my mind, how can I connect these two? And what does that mean in the context of like the larger social world that I've purposefully cut myself off from in order to be closer to nature? How, how can one, you know, stitch those two back together and integrate those? Cause it's not enough to just, at least for me, it wasn't enough to just say, I have made this ethical decision to live well. And so on my moral high road, I shall prance around in victory while the rest of, you know, everyone just like lives in squalor of like, you know, contradiction and hypocrisy and paradox. And here I will like have achieved, you know, the meeting of all that is holy, right? Like that's not a real thing. Um, and so I was having a tangled time. I had two young children. I was tangled. And I read a book of psychoanalytic theory, a very short book written in the 80s by this male psychoanalyst. And, and he said, basically, he deconstructed a Greek myth, the myth of Eros and Psyche, which is kind of in my mind, and I didn't know that much about Greek mythology, but it was, it was, you know, Psyche's this mortal princess, and she's beautiful and everything. And then she marries the god of love, and they live happily ever after, you know, on Mount Olympus. And she has this fraught relationship with her mother in law, Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And so in my mind, it was like the classic kind of, you know, 
women on woman competition. You know, you got to steal the man from his mother and then you will become the true woman and blah, blah, blah. And it's all about like women deposing other women. In my mind, that was what it had been through my childhood. And my father used to read me Greek myths and everything. So, but what this psychoanalyst did was he instead, he had a theory that was that in fact, it was a story about every woman, you know, he says the archetypal woman, which of course is like a fraught concept in and of itself. Um, <laughs> but what does that even mean? But basically that it was a, it was the story of a woman's coming into awareness and that in fact, the woman in question was every character in the myth, sort of like in Jungian psychoanalysis, when you have a dream, you know, Jung says you are everyone in the dream and it's all versions of your own projection that come into a kind of character, a form of character, which you can then make sense of but only if you see them as relational to yourself. So when I looked at the myth of Eros and Psyche from this man's perspective of the woman being all of the characters, something happened in me where I realized that sort of like what Deleuze says, right? Like instead of asking, what is it? You instead ask, how does it work? So instead of looking at my life and the tangledness, why do I feel this way? What's wrong with me? What have I missed? Did I do something, you know, blah, blah, blah. What is the problem? Instead, I thought, okay, well, if I can narrativize it in a way <laughs> that turns everything into a character, then perhaps if I manipulate their order, I can make sense of it by learning about how it works. And so that was the first draft. And then... The really interesting part was, you know, I had a lovely agent who really believed in my vision and she sent it out to a lot of editors because she felt there was this urgency to it. I'd like written it in secret and my only my husband had read it and he encouraged me to send it to her. But of course, I didn't even really know what it was yet. And through the responses from the editors, all of whom rejected it. I learned so much about the, and I had been an editor for many years at this small niche publishing house in Vermont. And before that, I had worked for a couple years in New York. So it's not that I was unfamiliar to the business of publishing, but not in the literary world, not in the world of like deep sort of cultural philosophical meat. And, you know, like I had been in the agricultural publishing world, just totally different. And um, anyway, and all of a sudden I saw sort of like art for commerce and art for social transformation, and the contradictions in what the market was willing to support. An editor might believe in art for social transformation, but they might not be able to sell it to their sales team. And, the, and I saw so clearly, and I thought in, at first it was, well, what's wrong with my book that they didn't want to buy it? What's wrong with it? What is it? Is it bad? You know, the same like, asking of the question. And instead I looked at it and I said, well, how does it work? And I started to see how like publishing is one small microcosm of the way the larger social system of capitalism works in relation to transformation and transcendence and these things. So the second draft of the book was much more focused on that question. So it was sort of like these layers of discovery um, and then sort of the next, I love this question because I'm thinking about it in phases. The next phase was compression, compression, compression. 
and stripping away to the essence of the book itself and and really the questions, the, the bigger overarching questions that perhaps were more intuitive in the first draft and then became larger and, you know, getting to the barest body of it, removing, 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 like a sculptor, you know, like shaving off the excess. And in the end, you know, it couldn't have happened in a better way. I mean, like I couldn't have understood the emotional feeling of rejection and that desolate feeling of desiring something that feels incredibly true to what it means to be you as a human and hearing the answer be, well, no, sorry, but you're just not quite good enough. Um, Or we can't sell you. (laughs) And then you're like, but I just want to be sold. And then you're like, wait, no, I don't. I don't want to become this object for sale. That's not what I value. But why do I, what is the difference between what I think I want and what I really want? And how does it work that my mind can be tricked into believing that what I think I want, in fact, is what I want? So I'm grateful to the process. I found, oh my God, like the best editor, the best publisher in the end. I'm so lucky. Like it was fate. It all worked out. But I couldn't have reached this point of inquiry without being kind of beaten down <laughs> by, the, by that machine because it became such an important part of art making. It's crazy. I mean, I think, you know, before we started recording, I was kind of giving you a little backstory on my, I guess, journey. Um, and this world is really the one, the only one that I've known personally, professionally, creatively being tapped in, sharing. So I think, I don't want to say the silver lining of this year, but this year has certainly forced these conversations to the forefront of everybody's mind. And it'll be so interesting to kind of reread the shame maybe a year from now. It's almost like a time capsule before the world blew up (laughs) Um, and hopefully is rebuilding. Or maybe, (laughs) yes, rebuilding, but also like, you know, maybe what we need is a revolution. I don't know. I mean, maybe what, maybe the collapse is, you know, a calling forth, a summoning to, for people to say, to wake up and to see that like, in fact, we are all these cogs and we have created meaning in the machine in which we act as cogs. Because if the machine is good and we can believe in the machine, then the cogginess of us is, I don't know, like existentially valuable. We can we can say, oh, I'm tired at the end of the day, but like for good reason, I made this choice. And when the choice has been stripped away, we can see that, you know, the really barest bones of what we're doing on this earth and we can take it back. But first we have to detach, I think, from everything that we thought we wanted first. And I can tell you that most people in this world, or at least those with access to the least goods have already been in this barest place where like survival and protection and um, food and shelter is the only thing that is can get us through. And there's joy in those communities too. I mean, that's something that I'm really interested in is like, there's a lot of depression right now among privileged communities who for the first time are seeing 
wow, you know, it really sucks to not be able to do X, Y, and Z. It's really a bummer to not be able to have dinner parties anymore or to go to the movies or to go to bars with my friends. Um, and, and I think that's important, but I also think that's a little bit of the, oh, I guess I've had the, a little bit of the wool over my eyes in a way. I think it's like this a wake-up call to those with privilege, like, yeah, <laughs> this has been reality. Absolutely. And I was just thinking too, I mean, there are certain aspects of the shame that I was really drawn to, but I can't necessarily relate to. I'm not a mother. I don't know how to drive. But I'm curious if there were (laughs) things that you maybe found yourself drawn to when writing that you maybe couldn't relate to in that moment, but felt like you now understand better after finishing the book and going through that process. Yeah, I mean, I think that relatability in literature is not a prerequisite, actually. I mean, I think that if we had to relate to everything that we read, we would we would be drawn to things that wouldn't draw us out of ourselves. I mean, I really think that we read, I read, I read both to understand myself deeper, but through comparison or not comparison through like juxtaposition to something totally different from me. And I think that there's this myth of relatability in literature that again is like driven by commerce that, you know, this book is for you. This book is not for you. You should go over to this section, not to this section. And I think, you know, you know, motherhood, it's funny. There's these themes that people keep coming back to in regards to the shame which makes sense. Um, you know, it's the way the book is is categorized through its metadata. It's the way the description was written. It's the way that interviews are conducted and reviews are created of a breaking down into categories. And then through the kind of branching off into categories, you can kind of look and say, yeah, no, motherhood, no. Nature, meh, all right, sure, nature. Social media, definitely not. Art making, well, I'm not really an artist. I don't really care, no. And you can kind of like, define your reading experience before you've even immersed yourself in a close reading. And I think that this happens, it happens with me. In fact, I was, I just started a book last night. I was really tired and I had this novel that I really, you know, I wanted to read and, and I kind of didn't want to read it. I was like, I think I'm going to dislike this book, but I know I have to read it. So I'm just going to quickly start it. And then I'll read 20 pages. And then I'll say, I've read that, or I've started that, and then I can move on. And I just got sucked right in. And I thought it was incredible. And I thought, well, why did I think I wasn't going to like this book? And it was entirely the markers of commerce. It had There was no reason that I would, you know, it was written by a man. Well, I'm not a man. So do I want to live in a man's head? No. You know, his <laughs> author photo was like a bit menacing looking. And I thought, great. Like, I want to be in bed with this guy. No, thanks. You know, there were just all of these ridiculous reductionist things going on in my mind. And I feel like that happens even more, you know, depending on like, what does the author photo look like? So often people are drawn to author photos for specific reasons, you know, that are gendered, that are biased, that are consumptive. And I think it limits us. And there's so many books being published. So you have to categorize them. Otherwise, how could you ever find out about them? And yet, I think that's part of the problem. It's just like social media, right? You think the whole world is in your phone, when in reality, it's just the world of your projections, because you choose to follow certain things and then the algorithm 
morphs your choices into pre-selected future choices. <laughs> so you're like not even looking at the world. You're looking through, you're basically looking in a mirror. And it's not a transformative mirror. It's like the mirror of the darkest self. It's like the evil queen who's looking in the mirror going, who is the fairest of them all? It's like you or no, it's Snow White, <laughs> you know? And then she's like, well, fuck Snow White. I'm going to kill her. And then she spends her whole existence trying to kill Snow White. And in the end, you know, she dies. And so... To me, I think of us, we're the evil queen. And we're like, what should I read? Who should I be? And culture and commerce goes, here, this. And then we just become these like automatons of one direction. And then we identify with it. Again, it's like being a cog in the machine. If you can identify with the thing that you feel you have become, it makes it more palatable to be that thing. If you look at yourself and go, God, like, how did I get here reading only books by women? Or how did I get here reading only books from quote unquote, the canon? Or why am I only reading New York Times bestseller books, like, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And how does that affect my inner life? So like, to me, you may not be a mother, but you've been mothered or you've not been mothered. <laughs> like, everyone was born from a womb of some kind. You know, and so why isn't motherhood as a category in a book seen as like humanity or a metaphor for power or the idea of inception, you know, just like social media so often. And I cringe when people talk, start talking, asking me questions about like, you know, like was Celeste based on anyone that you envied and whatnot. And I think to myself, sure, of course, like it's a, it's one of the seven deadly sins. Like, we envy, like that's what we do, but it's not what is the envy, where did it come from, but why, how does it work? And so to me, social media in this book is about the idea of women in particular as being socialized, even as they reject the socialization to be consumed as objects of desire. You know, I was just reading this interview with Susan Sontag, who was talking about how, you know, she, this was like in the seventies and she had cancer at the time. And she was talking about how, like, you know, you got to get a seat at the table, basically. It's not about rejecting the seat at the table and saying, no, we want the table to look different. So we refuse to sit at the table. And she says, well, if you want power, you have to sit at the table with the power. You know what I mean? When women are socialized to be objects of desire, they then we can oftentimes forget that that is actually a socialization, not a true nature. And that then we experience ourselves as wanting to be an object of desire or comparing ourselves to someone who we feel is doing a better job of being an object of desire. So in fact, it's not about who the woman is or what the blog is or what she wore or what that means, but more like, what does it mean that we allow ourselves to create a culture where it then is seen as truth? How can we break that down and say, actually, being a woman is a very vast experience of humanity that is on a continuum of masculinity and femininity and has like incredible divergences. I mean, all of these points are valid. And I'm just kind of going through my own experiences navigating this space, so to speak. 
And I think too, it was, you know, very interesting to me how most of the book was like inner dialogue and inner thought and inner worry. And something that I always like to kind of ask everybody who comes on this podcast, whether they're a writer or a business owner, or anything in between, is how their kind of take on pace affects what they're building in a climate like this. Alma seems to me like very, very lonely. And the way that that comes out is just through this sort of frenetic energy and pace of her thoughts. So I'm curious, like, you know, what is your relationship with pace now as you kind of navigate all of these things, writing a novel like this and just generally too? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, pacing was very important in terms of my writing. And I think, you know, whether that's intentional or not, but I also find, I mean, it's just important in, read, in my reading life. You know, pace is key, which isn't to say that I only read fast-paced books because I feel my mind moves fast. But I think it is sort of the writer's duty, in a way, to, you know, you've asked the reader to sit down with a book however long. You've asked them to invest in some form, whether they bought the book or they borrowed it. They've traveled to the library. Like, it's in their hands, you know. And, and they're investing their time into your creation, which I think is, a, it is an honor and it is a duty then to deliver something transcendent. Obviously, that's, you know, hard to do. I think that a book, I believe that a book can be a portal into the complexity of human consciousness. And when successful, when very successful, it can be a portal into the collective unconscious of various social worlds. And if it's brilliant, it can be a portal into humanity itself. And, and these are obviously tall orders. And oftentimes books are just distractions and they can be distractions for people, you know, like the TV on in the background when you're cooking dinner, you know, it doesn't need to be transcendent. Maybe it's not what the reader's looking for. But I think my theory is that that's what everyone's looking for. And if the pacing is good, then they can be engaged. And the story must be engaging because the mind is fickle and it's distractible. And, and I think if the book courses like a river, you know, if it's rushing down, then that's good. You know, it takes you on the raft and you don't have to do much except kind of let yourself flow with the current of the river. And at the same time, and this, I think, again, has to do with pacing is like there has to be space for the reader's consciousness to breathe and to think for itself, to reflect on itself side by side the narrative world of the book. Because at least, again, as a reader, what I want, I want to be taken so deep into the portal <laughs> that the writer is taking me in that I forget myself entirely. But I want there to be enough air pockets that at various moments, I recall myself again. And, you know, I see myself and I go, whoa, there I am. I'm in this story. Why am I here? How am I a part of this? How does this reflect into my own experience? How can I be changed? You know, like, this is what I love about novels is that, you know, like you say, she sat down at the dining room table. And that has many possibilities because you could say she sat down at the oak table 
you know, five legs coming off of the pedestal. And it was this, this, and that, and the other thing. And to me, pacing would be just saying she sat down at the dining room table. And then the reader gets to imagine the dining room table. And I, and I think the reader goes to the dining room table of their childhood or whatever meaningful dining room table they can remember, even if it was that they ate on the floor. And that, that is, that's that pocket of space in the pacing that allows the reader to connect, even as you say, they're not a mother or they don't know how to drive. So what? So you're driving, you're driving, and all of a sudden you can recognize yourself because of some break in the narrative that allows for that. Anyway, so I think like these recollections of objects from the reader's own life is where transcendence happens in a book. I've been thinking about this a lot lately about like memories and and lived experience and where memory comes from. And I think social media plays into this a lot, especially now. I mean, certainly for me when I was writing the book and it was what I was interested in was Alma had decided to remove herself from society and yet she was still hooked in by technology, right? And now, of course, here we all are, we're quarantined and we have we need these lenses into the outside world. And my question is in writing this book was like are we creating false memories through this voyeurism of other people's lives? Are these snapshots that like imprint into our unconscious in the same way as like the snapshot of our grandmother sitting at the dining room table? I don't know. And I worry about it because, or I wonder about it because I think there's this really (laughs) big chasm between a memory that happened that you lived through versus a memory that you constructed. And, And I don't know how the psyche deals with the difference between those two things, but I do think that they're different. And I think what we're doing is we're cramming our psyches with layers and layers and layers of timelines of other people's images that take up space in our memory. Tragic thought. Sorry, I'm just, I'm processing all of that. You mentioned in another interview, I believe that there was conversation about whether the woman Celeste was even real or not. And so I think dealing with this idea of what is true, what is constructed, and then what is consumed is so interesting, especially telling stories in this connected age. And so what does this idea of slow storytelling mean to you? Is it kind of building on what you just spoke about with pace? How can we translate that into something that's substantive and has longevity in a space that's so crowded and asking so much of us in terms of just constantly taking in this stream of information. I mean, I think that we just need to stay close to where we are in our immediate worlds, you know, like where, like look at it and say, you know, not what is it, but how does it work? And try and figure out the mechanism behind I don't know, a small concentric circles, these little concentric circles that start really small, start with the self, then start with the next concentric circle, the room that you're in, then the the building that you're in, you know, then what's right outside the window, what's right outside the building. And I think 
Some people might spend years just on the self. And if we skip ahead to someone else's bedroom, how can we know what it would be like in someone else's bedroom when we haven't examined what it's like to be in our own bedroom first? And which isn't to say that we can't understand someone else who isn't us. It's not about like, you know, you have to know yourself before you can know anyone else. But I think that here we are in this moment and we are being, it is being mandated that we slow down and shrink our lives. So how does that work? You know, instead of saying, what is COVID? What does it mean to be, you know, isolated? What does it mean to be cut off from our neighbors? Who am I? <laughs> what, like, what did I dream about last night? What did I eat this morning? What are my desires? You know, and I think it could be an interesting opportunity for people to strip away social constructs as much as possible and say, instead of who am I in relationship to the office culture, say, or who am I in relationship to the club, you know, dancing with a, with all these other people in these outfits. It's like, who am I? What does it mean to not actually dress in the morning so that someone else can see me? How does that change the way I even interpret what clothing means? If clothing has become something deconstructed in the sense that, I mean, oh my God, like I'm looking at the ads on social media and I'm just amazed by how many PJs there are. <laughs> just like, there's just so many great PJs out there. And I'm like, this is, you know, <laughs> this is this new market. And commerce is saying, we've got to corner the market on pajamas and loungewear because loungewear is where it's at now. But there was that moment before the market cornered loungewear where everyone was like, oh my God, I'm just in my PJs every day. No one had bought new PJs yet. And I felt like that was the moment where it was like, well, what is the purpose of clothing and how does clothing work? And what if we just stopped right there and just wrote about that? I would find that very interesting. Maybe this is the the foundation for your next piece. <laughs> the time before all the PJs. <laughs> yes, PJ Chronicles. <laughs> um, there are so many questions that I think are bubbling to the surface from this conversation alone. But I do want to ask you one of my like mainstay questions that I think this idea of slowing down and talking about our recalibration of pace and what we're prioritizing, it's always really interesting to hear. But as you kind of pose some of these things to our listeners, I'm wondering, you know, in whatever context you want to answer this through, is there a particular question that you hope people start asking you more often? I think, what was your childhood like? You know, I think that we forget about our development as people, as, as being informed by our childhoods. And I, that's certainly something that I would want to ask my heroes or someone who I'm curious about the way they think. How was that informed by their childhoods? If you're comfortable, would you be able to answer it? <laughs> 
<laughs> That's a trap. That's a trap. No, I'm just joking. I do have another question too. If you feel like it's more, well, I, actually this might be a trap as well, but I think it's interesting, you know, again, like talking about this aspect of parenthood, is there, I mean, do you envision what your children will think when they are old enough to read the book? It's funny, you know, my son is seven and he's, he reads and he loves to read and, and he's very curious about it. (laughs) He opened it up and he just started reading it one day. And I was like, oh my God, like this is going to ruin his life. This book will ruin his life. (laughs) And he read the first two pages till the first break. And he was like, mom, you're a genius. He just thought it was the coolest thing because the first part of the book is based on um, a conversation I had with my niece, actually, who was eight at the time. And he got it. You know, he understood because it was ironically um, or interestingly to your question about and me answering, you know, about the question that I want to be asked or I haven't been asked about childhood is the book begins with childhood and it's all about It is all about childhood. People focus on the mothering, but it's so much about being a child and how we interpret the worlds around us and what that does to like our morality and our sense of ethics and our sense of what something is and what something isn't. You know what I mean? Like, anyway, so when I wrote this book, I mean, part of the reason, if I'm totally honest, that I really felt the urgency to write as opposed to just think and talk about it was so that I could create something that if I died too soon, my kids could read it and could understand the way that I see the world. Because my dad died when I was young. And he's someone who I think about all the time. I think, God, if I could just pick his brain about this, I would feel so much more whole somehow. You know, there's this big gap in my development because of losing him. And, and I think I wrote this book so that, in fact, I'm sure that I wrote this book so that my children would not have to suffer in that same way. And the irony (laughs) is that they'll probably read it too soon and suffer from not being able to understand that this book is not about me and that it's not about them. And, and I, and I worry (laughs) that they'll take it too literally. So I think too, though, what what I just love about reading and books and stories is that they can be revisited and there's power in, in reading something, letting it sit, and then maybe picking it up a month, 12 months, 12 years later and seeing, you know, what's changed in terms of how you perceive what you're reading and how you can kind of connect with that particular moment in time that a book is addressing or creating so I wouldn't be afraid I'd be (laughs) I'd be hopeful you know maybe they'll be able to talk to you about it in a way that you never imagined yeah or maybe maybe it's a childish wish in fact you know maybe it isn't about them at all but it's yet another projection of my own desire to understand myself as a child or to understand or to prevent the inevitable rebellion and the idealization of my father. I mean, it's interesting, you know, it's like 
he died when I was 11 and I have this idea of who he was, but that's just a story I'm telling myself. I don't actually know. You know, I have this idea that there would be this great connection that we would have over whatever, you know, and, and yet that could, that's just a wish. And I think what's the difference between that wish and the wish of a religious person who wants to get closer to God somehow? It's a similarly futile and important <laughs> journey. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that probably is a whole other conversation in itself. But I think to kind of bring everything that we've chatted about to a close, and I think on the the subject of self-discovery and discovery of what's important to you, how you want to live, a lot of the books that I've read this year deal with the creative self and creativity as the sort of catalyst for discovery but also is something that is a fear that almost needs to be overcome. And so I think fear is something that's top of mind for a lot of people right now. And in the vein of storytelling, what did writing this book and kind of giving Alma's journey a voice in terms of her relationship with storytelling sort of reveal about your own relationship with creativity and storytelling in our digital age? Yeah, I mean, I think I think creativity has been a catalyst for self-discovery, at least since religion stopped being the only means for a transformation of the self. You know, I think that, that this is not a new notion. You know, I think contemporary fiction might be focusing on, you know, the artist's kind of path at the moment for, for one reason or another driven by commerce, I would say. I mean, driven by the market, maybe because those books have done well, so editors are acquiring more of them. Or maybe because the artist, the writer, is an apt metaphor for the inquiring mind. And, and what we're wondering is, how, why are we this way? How, how did we get here? And for the, a narrator in a book to be someone who's already sort of preconditioned to ask those questions, that makes it easier somehow, an easier way in, partly because of the fact that art can navigate complexity and contradictions in a much easier way than any other discipline. You know, like you can be both a horrible, vile person <laughs> and a redeemable soul, you know, in one sentence in a novel. I mean, like th there's so many ways that complexity can be portrayed. And I, and I guess the question that interests me is like how art is mutable and co-opted, you know, and how, I think I said this before, like art that serves commerce is much different than art, which encourages a transformation of the self. And there is a difference. And um, it's not that one is better than the other, but I don't think they're one. I don't think they're both art. Like, I don't think you could just say, well, you know, they're both paintings and they're both, you know, they're, it's like, well, no, like advertising, you could paint an advertisement. That's not the same as a painting that is trying to make a comment or is trying to disentangle the complexity created by something like an advertisement. There's something to be parsed out. I hate to sound rigid or fundamentalist in any way, but I think that 
there is a complicity that needs to be acknowledged that perhaps now is the moment for that to emerge. There's this tendency for the artist to have this carte blanche, like, well, because I am sort of morally obligated to comment on society through art and question it, that removes me of the responsibility of having to say, well, how am I also a cog in that machine or a part of that system? I think it is the artist's duty to make themselves vulnerable, perhaps in that way, in order that the reader can feel safe enough to seek their own vulnerability. That was McKenna Goodman, author of The Shame. You can visit McKenna's website at McKennaGoodman.com to order the book and to read more of her work. And stay tuned as we'll also be sharing highlights from this episode at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.